Welcome to episode 163 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Beth Finbo. Beth was looking for a way to pay for college and dreaming of enjoying spring break like the rest of her friends. An army recruiter cold called her and asked her if she wanted a way to pay for college and to see the world. That was all it took for her to sign up and join the army and head off to boot camp days later. In this interview, we talk about her experience in the army, why she decided to re-enlist, and what her transition was like, and how the military prepared her to be an entrepreneur, and how she uses her military experience to help her in her business. It's another great interview, so let's get started. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Women of the Military would like to thank Gruntstyle for sponsoring this week's episode. Gruntstyle is an American veteran-owned and operated company that prides itself in patriotic spirit. Gruntstyle makes high-quality clothing with patriotic themes that wave the American flag with pride. With more than 200 veterans on staff, Gruntstyle has taken the American fighting spirit and instilled it in everything they do. Gruntstyle had humble beginnings starting off as a t-shirt company out of the back of their founder's car. They have since grown to employing almost 400 Americans and producing apparel for working out, everyday wear, fishing, hunting, and more. Women of the Military podcast listeners can get an additional 10% off your first order by using my discount code HUFFMAN at checkout. So go to gruntstyle.com and use the discount code HUFFMAN H-U-F-F-M-A-N at checkout for an additional 10% off your first order on any items. That's gruntstyle.com and use the code Huffman. Women of the Military Podcast would also like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Beth. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Amanda. My time in the military was like a million years ago. So interested to see where the conversation goes and what kind of memories it brings back. Yeah, it's always fun to do interviews because I read your guys' bios and then it never goes quite like I expected. (laughs) (laughs) I used to try and guess and now I'm just like, I'm just going to be along for the ride. 
So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? My story is a little bit interesting, I guess. I didn't necessarily intend to join the military. I was going to college. Uh, It was Minnesota in the spring, which sometimes is very cold and just gross. And all of my friends were at really cool spring break places like Mazatlan and Cancun and having a blast. And I was uh, in Minnesota trying to work to get a paycheck to cover my tuition because I had written a bad check for tuition and wanted to get money in the bank before the school got around to cashing it. And so I was in my dorm room just kind of pouting and feeling sorry for myself about how I wanted to get out of Minnesota because it was so cold and gross and I wanted money for school. I didn't like having that like bad moment of having debt. And my phone rang and it was a recruiter and he said, do you want money for school? Do you want to travel the world? And I was like, yes, I do. Um, And then I think maybe three or four days later, I was in the delayed entry program, signed up, ready to go. Wow, that's so quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tend to make decisions very quickly. Uh, My parents were a bit surprised, but I was excited. That's awesome. So you didn't think a lot about it. You're just like, let's do this. Yeah, I kind of feel like everything comes into your life when it's supposed to and for a reason. So when stuff like that pops up, I don't really question it. I just I wanted a way out of Minnesota and money for college and a phone call came in offering me that. So there you go. Did you feel ready for basic training when you went and like kind of came out of nowhere? Yeah, I did. I had a really awesome recruiter who was just really honest about how it goes at basic training. So I was mentally prepared. I was in physically pretty good shape. So that part wasn't bad. I I think emotionally, he prepared me for how it goes about, you know, you get they break you down and then build you back up. And I think he had told me no matter what you do in those first couple weeks, no matter how hard you, you know, polish the floor or your boots, like it's not going to be good enough. So just they're going to yell at you, let them yell at you and then wait a couple weeks and then you'll be fine. So when they were yelling at us for not performing well enough, I was just like, oh, yeah, he told me this is going to happen. I'm not going to take it personally. So basic training was actually pretty fun for me. Yeah, I think if you know what to expect mentally, it makes it a lot easier because if not, you're like, oh, my goodness, we're not doing good enough. I need to do harder. And like, then you stress yourself out and said you could be more relaxed. And Yeah. And I was a perfectionist. I mean, I was a straight A student. I always did everything to get that approval. And so going in, knowing I wasn't going to get that approval, no matter how hard I worked, just really prepared me. I would have been crushed otherwise, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really good advice. So what career field did you end up doing? Yeah, I ended up having two. I started, um, so I was in 10 years. I did five years in one job and five years in another. And I started out as a military intelligence electronic warfare linguist. This is a mouthful. I learned Russian and Serbo-Croatian. And then I learned how to use um, electronic warfare equipment to intercept signal and translate what we were hearing to send then to, you know, the higher ups was my first job. And you joined in like 96, was that right? Yep, 96. So what was the military like when you joined? Did you Was it like a high ops tempo or what was that experience like of joining the military? Uh, it was really coming down from a lot of tension in Russia. So that's why they still had my job and I learned Russian, but then there was never a need for it because everything was kind of wrapping up there. Um, and then I went into Bosnia after everything was kind of already settled and we're, we're just kind of there maintaining and building things back up. So it wasn't really, there wasn't a lot of tension at the time that I joined. 
And what was it like to be in Bosnia and working there? Were you still doing the same career field? Yeah, I was. I was. So I had gone back to um, the Defense Learning Institute and learned Serbo-Croatian and then was deployed to Bosnia for a year. And it was uh, a very interesting year of my life. It was in 1999. I started out on an American base, but then quickly ended up on a Danish base. So I was one of I mean, for for a period, I was the only American stationed on this Danish and Polish base in Bosnia. And I worked in an office. I had back then internet was not as prevalent as it is now, but I had internet because we were um, I was working with local translators. So local nationals would come to my office on on our little Danish camp. They would translate the local newspaper and the local radio stories. I would help them and proofread and fix their English. And then we would then send a daily report. But because it was a different environment, it was not the same rules. You know, Danes and and the Polish have different rules for deployments than Americans do. So they had on this tiny little camp, two different bars where every night the soldiers that were done with work, they would go for drinks. And, and so it was, it was a really fun, I actually found out the roots of my name while I was there. It's kind of a, I'll try and shorten the story, but my name, my last name is Finbo. And in Denmark, there are states essentially like the United States. And one of them is an island called Fyun, F-Y-N. And if you're from the island of Fyun, you're a Fyunbo. It's like if you're from Minnesota or Texas, you're a Minnesotan or a Texan. So as I'm walking around that camp my first day, the Danish soldiers were looking at my name tag on my uniform and they're like kind of like smirking, kind of like questioning looks. And finally, one of them asked me, is that really your last name? And I was like, yeah, why? He's like, because it's not a name. I was like, it is a name. He's like, no, it's not. It's a nickname. And he explained the fact that you, you know, if you live on that island of Fune, you're a Funebo. And so what I ended up finding out is that originally I was a Christensen. And when my family immigrated, there were so many Christensen's, everybody referred to us as the Funebos because we were the ones from the island of Fune. And so my great grandpa took that name as our name. That's a really cool story. Yeah, so all the Danish soldiers knew who I was because I was the only American and I had the, the silly nickname as my real name. Yeah. What a cool piece of history to learn in kind of a weird roundabout way. Yeah, yeah. There was, it was one of many interesting things that happened in that year of my life. <laughs> I was on a French fob when I was in Afghanistan, and we they had the bars, and it was like, we couldn't drink, but there was like alcohol everywhere, and it was like, this is kind of crazy. It's interesting, the different cultures, and to be the only American, we were like, I think there were like 150 of us, so not one, but it, so it's just so different. So... When did you switch career fields? After, let's see, after, okay, so part of my time in Bosnia, I met someone from another American unit um, who was my dream, dream guy, dream boat. And we started dating during deployment, which is always a great idea. Um, And then we ended up back in the States, met each other's families, had all these plans to get married. And I had to go back to Bosnia for two more months. And then I was going to be getting out of the military. I was going to become the military spouse. We were going to have kids, all the things. And the last couple months while I was in Bosnia, he ended up cheating on me and getting someone else pregnant and ultimately naming their baby the name we had picked out for our baby. So my plans were kind of foiled. (laughs) So when I had everything, you know, in line to get out of the military and everything was ruined, I ended up re-enlisting and changing jobs. And so the reason I re-enlisted was the job was going to be in Italy. And I thought that was a great idea. So I, I reclassified into a broadcast journalist position and I was a broadcaster for the American Forces Network. 
that's a really unfortunate story, but then yeah. like cool ending. No, it's awesome. I ended up in Italy and had a, another five crazy fun years in the military and everything happens for a reason. Yeah. So did you have like a desire to do broadcast journalism or was it like something they were like, hey, you can go to Italy and you were like, sure. Yeah, I, I was not at all interested in reenlisting whatsoever. And then they said, but we have an assignment in Italy. And I said, okay what is it? And I thought it sounded fun. It sounded cool. I got, you know, to go learn another skill. I love learning new things. And so to learn how to do it and, you know, be on the radio, edit video, that kind of thing was, it was all interesting and fun for me. So what year was it that you went to Italy? Italy was 2000, 2001. So right, right before September 11th? Yeah, I was actually on the air when September, like when the the terrorist attacks happened. So I was in our broadcasting um, station on Camp Darby in Italy, and I was doing the afternoon radio show. So kind of like what everybody listens to on the radio on their way home from work. And I was live on the air and in the room next to me was our, our kind of TV tower where um, when you're overseas, you can't play regular commercials like you can in the U.S. So we would plug in all these really generic, horrible commercials that we made ourselves about, you know, going to AFES and getting a sale on a VCR or whatever on post. Um, so I was loading in our, our cheesy commercials and it was live with Regis and Kelly that was on TV. And that was when the first plane hit. And so I kind of might have been the first person to let people know whoever was listening to the radio at that time in Italy that that was happening. That's kind of that's a crazy story. Yeah, I don't think anybody will ever forget where they were when that happened. But I I definitely will never forget. Yeah, I woke. I was on the West Coast. So I woke up to the news because I got up for school and I was just reading a story. I'm reading General Dunworthy's book. And she talked about the day and like what she did in the morning. And then she was like, and then this happened. And I was like, it's so weird. Cause like for me, September 11th from the get go, I woke up to the radio and they were talking about it on the radio. And I was like, what's going on? And so September 11th never started as a normal day for me. It always was like the day of the attack. So I remember like where I was when I heard the news and all that. But it's just interesting, like different time zones, like how day was different. Yeah, because it was definitely a normal day for us. You know, it was, I don't know, three, four o'clock in the afternoon or something like that where I was. Yeah. So it's really interesting to hear that. And what was the response in Italy? Did the base pretty much say the same? Or were you guys put on high alert? Or do you remember anything in that aspect of it? Gosh, I don't actually. I, I don't remember there being any kind of freak out at that point. It was just like, uh oh, we're going to definitely be retaliating for this since we're over, already over here. Like we kind of just were mentally preparing that we would probably be one of the first ones to, to move out. So we were just kind of like waiting for like, how soon is it going to be before they tell us we're deploying? And did you end up deploying? I did. It wasn't right away, but I was the first technically embedded journalist in Operation Iraqi Freedom when they started doing embedded journalists. So even though I was in the military, I was assigned to a Chinook unit and, you know, just traveled with them throughout the deployment. So we started in Kuwait. And then when the, I guess when it started, moved into Iraq. Interesting part of that was my brother was stationed in Germany. He was also in the army. And so he got deployed as well. And our poor mom was just 
I mean, there she couldn't stop crying. Her two babies were going to go over there. And of course, in the U.S., you just see the horrible news. Um, but when I got to Kuwait and they were unloading our bags from the truck, my brother was one of the people unloading bags. So we actually were together in Kuwait for two weeks before we moved into Iraq. And then we kind of went our separate ways. That's like a small world. You're like, hey, yeah. I was like, hey what are you doing here? Come here often? <laughs> and what was that experience like being embedded as a journalist and just being at the beginning of the war and reporting on it? It was a lot of things. It was frustrating in some ways because, um, for example, in, in one scenario, an aircraft had been shot down. I knew that everybody was okay because it was part of our unit. We knew everybody was okay. They were, you know, it was fine. I could have reported on that and uploaded it. I had satellite equipment to upload the story. But because of my position and what they wanted for me to do, I was just there to do the feel-good stories of like how you do your laundry in the desert and stuff like that. So I wasn't able to report back to Germany and Italy that your family members are okay because they had it in the news, you know, a Chinook has been shot down and that's all they said. So now you have all these family members that are, know their spouses in a Chinook unit and can't to have no idea. And I could have like reported at least in the local Germany area that, you know, everybody's okay. And they wouldn't let me. So that was frustrating. It was frustrating being a woman when we were in Kuwait because we were staying on a Kuwaiti base and they do not let you have exposed skin as a female. So it was very, very hot. And I'm going around in my full PTs, just sweating my butt off. So that was interesting. And by very, very hot, you mean like 120, 130? Like it was hot. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was definitely around a hundred. I think it was still technically winter, but it was still hundred degrees. And then like the dust storms. I've, I'm from Minnesota. We have horrible blizzards and I've like the dust storms we went through were worse than any blizzard I've ever seen. It's just was insane. Yeah. Lots of interesting stuff. It was, it was overall, I think, you know, how I look back at my entire military career was a great experience full of ups and downs. Like I think anything you do in life, but yeah. I think that's one of the parts of the military being deployed. Like sometimes you have your hands tied and you can't do certain things, even though like this is the best way to do it. And the military is like, no, we're not doing that. And it doesn't matter that you want like you wanted to notify the families. It's like, no, you can't. And you're like, "Ah." there are plenty of situations like that when I was deployed where it's like, this doesn't make any sense. Well, this is what you're doing. I'm like. Okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah, there's a lack of common sense for sure. It's not the first first thing we go to. So was there anything else from your time in the military that you experienced that you wanted to talk about before we switch over to transition? You know, I went through a lot of change in the military. So in the 10 years, I was in 14 different countries. I moved around a lot and I was alone a lot. I actually wasn't ever part of a unit. I mean, I was part of a unit, but I, I was always a, like my, when I was stationed in Italy at the broadcasting place, there was five of us total. And so every other unit on base had, you know, there was squadrons. It was an air force primarily base. There was, you know, big groups of people who trained together, did PT together. We had five of us. And then when I deployed, it was just me. When I was in Bosnia for a year, it was just me. I wasn't part of a big unit that did the training together and moved on together. And so I think doing all that actually really helped me once I left the military to be able to be kind of stronger on my own. And it's funny because when I was in the military, the slogan, the majority of the time was army of one. So I kind of feel like I really was an army of one most of the time. 
It's funny because I've been talking to one of my friends about how women veterans in particular are really independent. And I think a lot of it is because the military like kind of pushes you in a way that you have to be independent. And then in your situation, it was like even more intensified because like I was an individual augmentee, but I deployed with a team of a bunch of other individual augmentees. So we were a group of like 140 of us were just random people that were added to a team. But to be alone is even even harder because yeah. you don't really have anyone that you can relate with or go. I felt really lucky that I had other people on my team that we could experience the same thing. You're kind of away. A military spouse would be back home where they're alone, but you're over deployed and you don't have that camaraderie. Yeah, but I didn't know any different. So it was kind of all I knew. So looking back on it, like if I had to go back and do that again, I think I'd be a lot more nervous about it. But I didn't know any different at the time. And I was young. I think you're a lot braver when you're young. You're like, okay, whatever. This is what we're doing. Yep. Yeah. Well, you said the military changed you a lot and you learned a lot about yourself. And then when you were finished with your second, was it your the end of your second enlistment when you decided to leave? I know you said 10 years. Yep. Yeah, I was pretty much right at the 10-year mark. And you were like, I don't want to stay in for retirement. I'm ready to switch. Yeah, I knew that if I stayed in, I would deploy again. And that was going to be really hard on my mom because we were both deployed and it was very hard on her. And I was at the point where I was tired of not having any freedom over controlling my own life. Like if I didn't want to live in Southern California, I wanted to be able to move somewhere else. I didn't want to be stuck there until the end of my you know, duty. So I was just ready to have some control over my own life at that point. And so what was your transition out of the military? Like, was there any challenges or what did you end up doing? Gosh, I haven't thought about this in so long. I did take terminal leave and went back home for a while um, before I finally was completely out. And then I finished school. Um, I had been taking college courses throughout and I actually had taken so many courses. I didn't have much left, but I still had my full GI Bill. So before I finished my bachelor's degree, I went to cosmetology school and I just learned how to do hair for fun because I always thought it would be fun to know how to color hair and cut hair. And I never intended to do it as a job, but... Um, I had the money for school. So I did that. And then I went back to college and got my bachelor's degree in business management. And then it was so about that time was 2008, 2009. And there were no jobs like the recession was pretty heavy. And there was nothing I really wanted to do. So I thought, well, I'll go get a government job. I had a top secret TSSCI clearance. I thought for sure I could get something. I loved Fort Carson. I was stationed at Fort Carson. So I loved it there. And I had a friend who had a place there and he was getting deployed. So he said, you can just stay in my house while I'm deployed if you want to come look for a job. So I went to Fort Carson and started trying to apply for GS positions. And in the meantime, worked at the golf course. I drove around in the golf cart selling beer to the golfers. And I actually did that for two summers. I never did get a GS job. And it was fun. But I I then turned 30 and realized I, I did 10 years in the military. I have a college degree and I'm driving around a golf cart selling beer. Like, what am I doing with my life? And I ended up going back home to Minnesota and staying with my mom and was really down on myself. I'm like, I'm 30 years old. I live with my mom. And uh, and at that point, I got a call from somebody who I had been stationed in Italy with, and he was doing public affairs for the National Guard as a contractor, but he was also a National Guard member. And so he got called to deploy and was looking for someone to replace him for a year in his contract job in Washington, D.C. 
And so I moved to DC and did that job for a year and then stayed on with that contract company and did another job with them. And then I finally, so I had, you know, when I got out of the military, I went home to Minnesota, did some school, went to Colorado, came back home to Minnesota, went to DC, came back home to Minnesota. I couldn't just settle in. That was my biggest transitional issue is I had moved so much in the military that it never felt comfortable to sit in one place for very long. So finally, I moved home when my brother started his family and bought a house and and settled into Minnesota. So that's that's where I am today. But that was my biggest struggle was is was just like staying in one spot and doing one thing. And did you just feel like an itch to move? Like I've been here too long. I need to move. I did. I I, I did. Or I just felt like, okay, and it wasn't a conscious thought. I think it was just, you know, I'm used to every two years doing something different. And here I am. Like I, it's now it's time. I should be doing something different. It wasn't even conscious. It was just was an itch, like you said, to, to do something different. And when you moved back the final time, what do you think was different about that? Well, I mean, besides that you bought a house, but like, I feel like you had to have like a mindset shift or you were like, what happened to make you realize that you were having that itch to move and that you wanted to get settled instead? It was my brother having kids. I didn't want to miss like, you know, I, I've gone for 10 years in the military, gone for another, you know, five years ish back and forth. I didn't really care about much that I missed out on. And then when my brother started having kids and I wanted to be a part of their life, I didn't want to be the aunt that they see twice a year and don't even know. So that was that made it easy to stay home. Yeah, that makes sense. And did you find a job or did you is that when you started your business? Um, I did find another job just, you know, Rochester, Minnesota is where I lived. And that's where the Mayo Clinic is one of the biggest healthcare systems in the world, one of the best in the world. And so there's lots of jobs there. And I got a job, a different healthcare company working with the Mayo Clinic. And and it was a great job. It had a really, really good um, salary and just very steady and stable, which I was not used to. And so I started doing that. And then I met the guy that I'm getting married to now. We've actually been engaged for five years. We're getting married next summer. And I met Jake and we ended up getting pregnant a year after we started dating. And so then we started our family and started, you know, our life together. And shortly after my son was born is when I had an idea for an invention for a baby product. And since then, we've basically been consumed with growing that business. So we're finally now getting around to actually getting married. (laughs) Another kid, we've got two kids now and bought a place together and now we're going to get married. Did the pandemic have any effect on that? I mean, it sounds like you guys were busy anyways, but I was just wondering if like had a plan and then 2020. No, the the plan for the the wedding was always um so I was older. I was 40 when we had our first kid, and because of my age and we knew we wanted a sibling for him, we wanted to have another baby right away. So we decided consciously at the beginning we'll get married after we have the second kid cuz I didn't want to deal with pregnancy and wedding dresses and all that mess. Um, so that was the kind of the plan was to wait anyway. Then we ended up having fertility issues and high risk pregnancy. So when when the second baby finally came, he's almost two now. So by then it was lost on us like, oh, yeah, we'll get married eventually. Like we're not going anywhere. <laughs> we have our life. Everything's good. So now that things are a little bit more under control with the business, my brother uh, quit his job and joined me in the business. So I've got help now and got a little bit more bandwidth to focus on things like you know, getting married. Can you tell us a little bit about the baby product? I want to hear about what it was. 
and give you a chance to talk about it. A oh bit. yeah. Um, so it came about because right after my maternity leave ended, I went back to work and two of my stay at home mom friends took me out for lunch and they brought their one year old daughters with them. And the entire lunch, we couldn't even have a conversation because these two little girls were constantly reaching for everything on the table. Moms would give them toys to play with. They'd throw the toys on the floor. One mom was a germaphobe. So you had to wipe everything down every time. And it was just so distracting. And because I did have a good job with some disposable income, I was like, oh my God, let me just buy something right now that will make it so my kid isn't that distraction when he's big enough to sit at the table. So I went on Amazon and I couldn't find anything. And the next day I had an idea. So I invented the Busy Baby Mat, which is a silicone placemat that has suction cups. So it sticks down to the table or the high chair. And then it has a tether system that allows you to attach baby's toys to the mat so they don't constantly drop and throw them. Um, And then it also provides a clean surface for their food when you're out to eat. So that's essentially what I invented. And since then, we've grown to now we have six different products and 10 colors. And I ended up on Shark Tank this earlier this year. So obviously that helped business quite a bit. That's so awesome that you were like, oh, we need something. And then you're like, I'll go buy it. Dang it. There's nothing out there. And so you're like, I'll fix this by inventing it. (laughs) And I didn't necessarily initially, like I made a prototype for me and I made a prototype for one of my girlfriends who had a baby right after me. And that was kind of the end of it. Until she called me one day and she's like, I forgot that Matt thing. And it was horrible. Like you need to make this thing for real. So then I really dug in and I was like, okay, how do I do that? Started figuring it out. And what was the experience to be on Shark Tank like? It was pretty awesome. I mean, I had kind of envisioned it early on when I was making my first prototypes. I was, they even showed a a clip of it on the show that I was making prototypes at my dining room table. I had Shark Tank on in the background and I I say to my camera on my phone, like, I'm going to be on Shark Tank someday. So very early on. I wanted to do it. And then throughout the first two years of business, I mean, everybody would say, you should be on Shark Tank. You should be on Shark Tank. So I ended up getting an email address for a producer. And long story short, it was two years of back and forth before I was ready to go on the show. So in that time, I knew it was coming. I knew it was a possibility. I watched literally every episode of Shark Tank, which is like over 200 episodes. It was exhausting. But by then I had gotten to know every shark and every question they ask and every reaction they have. So when I got there, I felt like I already knew them. When I walked down that hallway with like the fish tank TV screens on the side and into the room, onto the rug, I felt like I like belong there because I had visualized it so many times, seen it on the show so many times, knew I was going to be there someday. So it was really fun. It was really fun. They don't show you everything. Um, I think on TV, it was edited down to 10 minutes or so. I was in there for probably closer to 50. Um, so there was a ton of conversation and, and banter that you didn't get to see. Mark Cuban is my favorite shark now. I had actually no thoughts about him going in. I knew he didn't care for baby products. So I was like, oh, he's not going to be interested. I'm not worried about Mark Cuban. And he was out right away because he has no interest in baby products. But the entire time he was cheering for me, like he was standing up and like, you go back, stick, way to stick to your guns and you're doing great. And he yelled at Lori at one point. I'm surprised they didn't show it on TV because he was like, Lori, you're just disrespecting her now. And I was like, whoa, like, no, she's not really. It's okay. (laughs) But I thought, well, maybe he just did that for TV and then they didn't show it anyway. So it was fun. It was really great. And, and because I did it, I filmed in the year of the pandemic, unlike every other season where you get to fly to Hollywood and go to the studio and stuff, I was actually quarantined in a hotel room in the Venetian in Vegas for eight days, literally 
could only open my door for room service. If I wanted ice, I had to call somebody and have them deliver it and they would set it outside the door. Could not leave my room at all. And as a mom with two young children, it was heaven because there was no diapers to change. There was no whining or crying. I FaceTimed them a couple times a day so I get to see them and they were happy to see me. <laughs> so it was it was really nice to to have some peace and quiet and focus time to work and kind of rejuvenate. And, and then it was fun to go on the stage and go on the show. And then when I left, you still, you don't know if just because you filmed it doesn't mean it's going to be on air. Um, they overshoot and not everybody who films gets to go on air. And so I left not knowing, you know, if it would ever make it or not. And you can't tell anybody what you're doing. So really nobody knew. So it was it was interesting. It was interesting. It was really fun. Yeah, that's really cool. And I loved how you talked about how you did all that research and how long, like the two years, because a lot of people would be like, oh, she was on Shark Tank. That's so cool. But they don't even see like all the back end work that you did to get to that point and how much time and energy and effort that made it so that you got to that point. A lot of people just see you on TV and think that it just happened automatically. Yeah. And people now think, oh, you're on Shark Tank. You're a millionaire. Like, no. No, I mean, Shark Tank raised our sales for a couple of weeks and then it went away. Like it was a really cool thing that I did. It was like a cool marketing thing for a week or two. And now I can say, you know, as seen on Shark Tank, but that's about it. You know, it didn't didn't change my life, but it was a really cool thing that that happened in my life. I really have loved hearing about your experience. And I know that you mentioned somewhere that you feel like a lot of the stuff that you learned in the military you've used in your business. So what's one thing that, you can take from your military experience that you've used in your business? I think it's the ability to just like adapt and overcome. So, you know, you train and you train and you train. And like for me getting deployed, I we trained in Egypt. We took our satellite equipment to Egypt and we practiced setting it up and training and, and doing everything. And then I took that same equipment and went to Iraq. But when I was there and had those sandstorms, we didn't have those sandstorms in Egypt. And so when the dust proof cases for my equipment weren't actually dust proof, you know, for a horrible sandstorm and everything got full of sand and now no longer works, what are you going to do? I mean, I'm in Iraq. It's not like I can just run back to the station and swap out my equipment. You got to figure it out and you got to move forward. And, and that that's just one example of like probably hundreds of times we do that in the military. And that mentality is just ingrained in me. There's no other options like, oh, it didn't work out like I thought. Shoot. Oh, well, it's like, okay, well, how are we going to change it? How are we going to make it work? Like that's just automatic. And that is really something I think that's helped me with the business because nothing in this business goes as planned. Like you, and especially when you don't know what you're doing in the first place, (laughs) you start a business with no experience. You like think you know how it's going to go and you plan for what the best you can. And then you realize, oh, okay, that's not how that works. Let me, let me figure it out. Instead of I think some people get burnt out or frustrated or even quit because they hit a wall. They're like, oh, that didn't work. Oh, well. And I I don't ever have, I, that doesn't happen to me. And I think it's a hundred percent from the military. Yeah, I totally agree. Cause I just think of my business and I'm like, oh yeah. So I would like hit a wall and be like, oh yeah, that didn't work. Let's turn and try a different direction. Yeah. Like how how else can we do this? (laughs) And quitting is not an option. Nope. I love that. So my last question is, what advice would you give to someone who's thinking of joining the military? I'd say just do it. Like, just do it. I mean, I personally don't see a downfall. It's not for everyone. And you'll find out if it's for you or not when you start the process. Um, But to me, there's no downside of it. And if you don't know what you want to do with your life, which I didn't at the time when I joined, 
you at least get your hand held. You know, I didn't have to pay for or think about health insurance. I didn't have to worry about where I was going to live or how I was going to eat because the army just takes care of it for you. You get food, you get a place to sleep, you have free health care. So at least you're taken care of and you get to learn some cool experiences along the way. So to me, there's no downside um, unless you're just a person that, you know, it isn't for everybody, you know, and if you're that kind of person, then you'll find out and at least you gave it a shot. But yeah, just do it would be my advice. Yeah. I, the military does. They take care of all those decisions. And I don't think I realized when I was in like how nice it was to not have to make decisions. But now that we're like getting closer to retirement, <laughs> we have to make those decisions. I'm like, it was really nice to not have to think about yeah. I mean, I've been out for quite a while and I still hate health insurance. I can't figure that stuff out for the life of me. It's just, I mean, I pay for it. I have it. Which doctors can I go to? Do I, I need referrals? What's a referral? Why can't I just go to see what I, the person I need to see and uh, deductibles and out-of-pocket expenses and all this stuff? I don't know. I miss the military for that reason. <laughs> yeah, the health insurance is really good. So thank you so much for your time. I'm really glad we got to do this interview and just thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun to kind of go back over over time. I hope it, at least it, if anybody's wondering or wants to do it, I hope it inspires them a little bit. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.